0: so as people are finding their seats, uh, we will be mostly in Galatians 4 today, but I'm also going to cover the final paragraph in Galatians 3, uh, from 3.23 to 3.29, which we didn't really uh, have a chance to look at last time. So, okay, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the worship uh, that uh, we've already taken part in, or will take part in if we're going to the later service, and for uh, Andrew's message today. uh, We thank you for what we uh, learned from your word in, uh, in every passage, and we ask this morning that as we study your word together that you would guide us through it and help us as we understand your word also to understand you better through it and to understand your gospel to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, okay, so um, as I said, we'll pick up here at the beginning in, uh, in, in Galatians, well, actually let me recap real quick what we've talked about in, particularly what we talked about last week. Um, In Galatians 3, we saw last week that what Paul starts doing is giving a lot of scriptural proofs from the Old Testament to prove what he has previously said in chapter 2, which is that justification uh, must be through faith in Christ rather than by keeping the law. So, in chapter 3, he turns to various passages of the Old Testament uh, in order to, to prove that point. And some of his main points in chapter 3 are that, uh, number one, justification has always been by faith and not by the law. Uh, Number two, that the law was actually never meant to justify or make alive in the first place. Instead, the law's purpose was to make sin known and to call sin to account. So the law was never actually able to deal with sin, but only to point sin out. Uh, so then that gets, that gets us to points four and five, uh, that the law was given to be a temporary guardian until Christ came, and finally, uh, that now all believers are sons of God through faith in Christ and nothing more. And because we are sons of God through faith and not anything else, that means that we are actually all on even footing, regardless of Jew, Gentile, or any other characteristic. So uh, where, we are, where we'll actually pick up here is with point number four, that the law was given to be a temporary guardian until Christ came, which is the point that he's really emphasizing uh, in, at the beginning of verses 23 through 29. So let me read Galatians 20, uh, 3.23 through 29 for us, and then we'll discuss that for a minute. Before faith came, we were held in custody under the law as those locked away for the faith that was about to be revealed. Thus the law became our tutor in Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, for you are all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, so let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, you can see uh, the argument there, the, the basic argument that the law is, is temporary in, in effect. Uh, the law's purpose was a temporary guardianship until Christ came. Uh, and so rather than being the ultimate path, for all time to good standing before God, the law was only actually meant to serve uh, any such purpose for a limited time until Christ came. And now. The, the word the, the the key word that Paul really uses in these verses is in 324 uh, where he says that the law became our tutor that word that I've translated tutor uh, is translated various ways in different translations um, you might see you might see custodian you might see caretaker I actually saw one uh, more colloquial uh, translation that used the word babysitter um, But the word that Paul uses here, a Greek word, pedagogus um, is actually a, a very specific word, and it's it, what it really means is something along the lines of a governess, except it's male in this case, masculine, and so uh, there is a masculine equivalent to governess in English, it's governor, um, but because that word has come to mean so many other things to us, it doesn't really work to use it here. Um, the But what we're really talking about is uh, a pedagogus was a uh, a slave that had a very specific purpose in a household, um, which was to act as both a guardian uh, on the one hand, a sort of legal guardian and a teacher or tutor. On the other hand, basically the, the heir, um, the child, the heir in the household uh, was under the protection and guardianship of this slave until such time as they came of age. And then they were no longer under that guardianship. So Paul has used this uh, this word this this um, position, this role that everyone in ancient society was familiar with to uh, as an analogy for the purpose that the law serves. Uh, he's saying that the law was like this sort of uh, slave, tutor, guardian um, that watched over us for a time, um, instructed us, kept us safe, uh, so on and so forth, exercised authority over us as well uh, until we came of age. Um, Coming of age here is, uh, what what he's really talking about is um, faith in Christ. And so, so that's what he means here in verse 24 when he says, thus the law became our tutor in Christ, uh, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. We've come of age, in other words, um, by coming to faith in Christ. And so, uh, by, by using this analogy, what he has, in effect, said is that the law served this temporary role as our guardian, um, but now that Christ has come, uh, first of all, he has… Um, now that now that Christ has come, we we are we are no longer under the guardianship of the tutor. We've come of age in in a manner of speaking. Um, and so to say that we're under the no longer under the law in this sense is not really to say so much that the law has been abolished as in what the law has to say is no longer true or something like that. The law continues to reveal um, God's will, continue, continues to reveal right from wrong. However, law keeping uh, is not how we gain good standing or worth before God, um, and we are not in that sense under the law. Um, Instead, good standing worth again comes from trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So, going back, reiterating in effect the same point that he's made ever since chapter 2 verses 15 through 21. Uh, As a result, uh, where Paul ultimately goes by the end of this paragraph Um, He's sort of getting to the end of all of these uh, scriptural proofs that he's been giving from the Old Testament now. So, as a result, uh, none of the usual human distinctions that we make mean anything in Christ. And so, this is where we end up um, in verses, I'll read 26 through 29 for us, or 28 for us again. Uh, For you were all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, So what Paul begins to spell out here is the way in which the truth of God's grace actually uh, nullifies Uh, all of the different criteria that we use on a human level to all the different distinctions that we make between one another that that we associate with some sort of worth or status. Um, normally in human society, especially in the ancient world, all of these things, uh, your ethnic status, Jew versus Gentile, uh, your status as a slave or a free person, your status as male or female, all of these sorts of things were key distinctions that people made between one another that had some sort of value or, or idea of worth attached to them. These were some of the main uh, areas in which worth was located. Paul basically says here, no, the truth of God's grace actually nullifies the significance of all of these things, and so he selects three of the most rigid distin- distinctions that existed in ancient society. First of all, if you're speaking from a Jewish point of view, there could be no more, more important distinction than Jew versus Greek, Jew versus Gentile, Another word, words, um, but Paul says that even this distinction is now meaningless, pointless in Christ. Uh, the second one that he picks here, slave versus free, uh, I recently read, as I was doing some research on something else, a Roman lawyer from a time period, just short, writing shortly after Paul, uh, saying that the most fundamental distinction, not just in society but in human nature, is the distinction between a slave and a free person. Uh, So that's how Roman society at the time that Paul was writing viewed this um, this particular distinction. The most fundamental distinction the even nature itself teaches us. That's how Romans viewed it. Um, Paul says, meaningless, it means nothing now um, in Christ. And, and finally, male versus female, even this basic distinction uh, between male and female in society. Again, Paul's writing in a society where women would have uh, very few rights, um, and I won't quite say none, but very few, and it was a male-dominant uh, patriarchal society. So Paul picks three of the most rigid distinctions that he possibly could have chosen. Jew versus Gentile, slave versus free, male versus female, and declares all of them meaningless because grace puts all people on, equally, on, on equal footing, equally void of bragging rights on the one hand, um, and equal recipients of God's grace and God's gift in Jesus Christ on the other. And so, uh, Nathaniel, if you'll switch slides. This is a quote from, uh, that I think captures captures this, what Paul is doing here, as well as uh, any quote that I'm aware of. Um, And this comes from a a prominent Paul scholar, John Barclay, um, who says this, Paul understands the single event of Christ to bring into question every pre-existent classification of worth. In figuring believers as dead to the world and as expressions of a new creation, he articulates the birth of dissident communities that are capable of disregarding distinctions between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. And this is the key. Social identities continue to exist. It's not as though any of those things have been abolished. Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, these things continue to exist in Paul's world um, as at least two of those distinctions continue to exist in ours. Uh, But while such social identities continue to exist, they are declared insignificant as markers of worth in a community that is beholden to Christ and operates at a diagonal to the normal taxonomies of value. In other words, Paul is not saying that somehow Jews and Gentiles uh, stop being Jews and Gentiles, male and female don't stop being male and female, um, slave and free. Uh, Paul is under no illusion that he can abolish slavery in his world, uh, you know, suddenly pretend that it doesn't exist in society. What he is saying is that within the church, within the body of Christ, we will not pay any significance to any of these things as markers of worth, um, what gives a human being worth, and because all people are one and the same, um, equally void of bragging rights, equal recipients of God's grace in Christ. Um, so this is the first time really in Galatians that we see Paul beginning to spell out uh, what God's grace means on a practical, functional level um, within uh, the body of Christ. Um, okay, on that note, I'm going to get us into chapter four. I realize there may be some questions about that, but I'll try to leave some time for that at the end. Um, so, when we pick up in chapter 4, Paul is almost immediately, he's, uh, he's extending the argument that he's just made in that last paragraph of Galatians 3. So, what I think I'll do here is read the first uh, 11 verses of Galatians 4 for us, and we'll pause there and discuss those for a little bit. So, starting off in Galatians 4, Paul says… But I say, for as long as the heir is an infant, he is no different than a slave, even though he is lord over everything. Rather, he is under legal guardians and estate stewards until the time appointed by the father. So also we, when we were infants, were once enslaved to the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law in order that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, also an heir by God. But back then, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. Yet now that you know God and moreover are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to the weak and impoverished elements for whom you wish to slave again anew? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Okay, I'll pause there. So as I said, one of the first things we see in that paragraph from verses 1 to 7 is Paul extending the argument that he was just making in 323 through 29, the, the argument that the law served a temporary purpose as our tutor or guardian. Uh, so he uses similar analogies here in verse 2 uh, as uh, speaking of the law now as uh, a legal guardian or an estate steward. Again, something that has a temporary purpose until the heir comes of age. Um, and what we basically see in this first paragraph from verses 1 to 7 is that uh, the Sinai Covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai that included the law, again, served a, a positive role uh, as a guardian and as a, as a steward, um, the role that Paul uh, uh, assigns to that covenant and to the law itself in verse 2. Um, but uh, but its purpose was to guard precisely until in the fullness of time God sent His Son Jesus Christ, as we read in verse four. And so so again, Christ uh, fulfills the purpose of the law, the former covenant. On the one hand, um, and the its purpose its its whole purpose was to act as our guardian uh, until Christ came. So Christ has now come, which means that in that way He's actually fulfilled the purpose of the law. Um, and, and in doing so, he also effectively uh, relieves the law, uh, or the Sinai Covenant, of its guardianship. Um, and uh, and I do want to make a, a little note here that uh, this in this section, as Paul is using the word law, uh, we've seen already that law for Paul is typically referring to the Torah, the, uh, the, the Jewish law, the law in the Old Testament. But... In this section, uh, he seems to also be capable of using it, we'll see this more and more as we go on through this chapter, uh, to refer to the entire Sinai Covenant um, uh, as part of which the law was given. Um, And so he can kind of speak of Mount Sinai and the covenant and the law interchangeably um, precisely because the law was given at Mount Sinai, and that is That is, the the making of the covenant with Israel at Sinai. Um, He's already done that a little bit, if we were to go back to chapter 3, verse 15, um, but he'll do it more and more in this chapter. Uh, Now, two phrases in this paragraph that need a little bit of explanation uh, that tend to be confusing are, number one, this phrase, elements of the world, in verse 3. This shows up twice, once in full, And then he uses a shortened form of the phrase in verse eleven. It also shows up twice in Galatians or uh, uh, Colossians, rather. So, um, but these four instances, twice in Galatians, twice in Colossians, are actually the only uh, examples of this phrase that we have in. Existing, existing ancient Greek. Uh, these phrases don't occur anywhere else that we know of, either in the New Testament or outside the New Testament. So so they're tricky uh, to interpret. And there's been a lot of inks built uh, about what elements of the world might refer to. There have been a lot of different ways that these get translated. Um, and But... Within about the last 20 or 30 years, scholars have pretty convincingly shown that it almost certainly is referring to the literal Physical elements that made up the ancient world, um, and so that may seem weird at first, um, but it'll make more sense when we get to chapter to, to, uh, verse eleven. Um, the connection between this phrase, between the idea of the physical elements that make up the world and law keeping, uh, will become a little bit more apparent when we get down to verse eleven. So um, I'll handle that further in just a second, but uh, the uh, actually, I'll go ahead and handle it now. But the so if, if you go down to verse if you go down to verse 11, uh, he uses the phrase elements of the world in verse three. But in verse 11, um, why did I put verse why did I put 11? Um, that should actually say yes. Yeah, I don't know why I wrote 11. Sorry, uh, that should actually be verse nine. Um, so and so there he refers to them as the weak and impoverished elements. Um, whom you wish to slave again anew, presumably by uh, choosing to be under the law. Uh, And he goes on in verse 10 and says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So what is so odd about this and confusing, especially in this paragraph uh, from verses 8 to 11, is that he seems to be comparing their former paganism, before they knew God, he says in verse 8, uh, to what it would mean to follow the law. And um, that that is shocking and would be especially shocking to anyone coming from a Jewish background. How can he possibly be comparing their former paganism on any level to what it would mean to become obedient to the law, to be under the, the Jewish law given by God? Um, and uh, the connection seems to be this, and this is where understanding elements as the literal physical elements that make up the world uh, actually comes, uh, comes into play. Um, whether you are, whether you're working with paganism or with the Jewish law, um, all human religiosity includes a certain amount of observance of religious calendars and, and other rituals, all of which take their cue from things that are part of the natural created world. In other words, where he goes in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Um, And so he's talking about the religious calendar that is part of the law there. Um, And that religious calendar, of course, days, months, seasons, years, is dependent on things like the sun and the moon, um, physical elements of the universe. And uh, the the connection works exactly the same way in Colossians, that same logic is apparent there, maybe even more apparent there than it is here. Um, And so the idea seems to be that whether you're talking about paganism or the Jewish law, uh, any sort of human religiosity uh, is actually bound in a way, um, observance of uh, religious calendars and rituals is bound in a way to the physical world. Uh, which happens to be the uh, the physical world that is, um, you know, perishing the perishable physical world as opposed to the imperishable life uh, that is given in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so his his logic here seems to be that. Um, it, if you, if you choose to be under the law again, in a sense you are going back to what you did before because you will once again be binding yourself to the perishable world, the world that is perishing, as opposed to the imperishable life that comes from Christ. Um, so that's, uh, that's a little bit of an explanation of what seems to be behind this phrase, elements of the world. The other term that needs a little bit of explanation um, in these first seven verses occurs in verse 5, and that's uh, adoption as sons. Um, I've translated it very literally that way, adoption as sons, because in Greek that is actually a single word, and it really does refer to adoption very specifically as a son. Um, And so it's a remarkably specific word that he uses here. Uh, But but, but here's perhaps why he would use that word, adoption as sons, specifically. Um, probably because in the ancient world, only adoption as a son actually entitled a person to any inheritance. Um, to be adopted as anything besides a son was virtually worthless. Um, and so adoption as sons is what really counts, what entitles you to some sort of inheritance. And, but what is remarkable here is that Paul doesn't actually apply it uh, to men only, uh, to, to males only. There's nothing here to suggest that. Instead, he applies it to all believers in Christ, uh, not, just, not just males, so that the status of heir that was in Paul's society, in Roman society, reserved for men alone in Christ actually applies to all regardless of gender. So it's extending the privileges that in Roman society were reserved for men to all believers in Christ, male and female. Um, Okay, so going on then down to that next paragraph, verses eight through 11, uh, I've already kind of gone through this now at this point, but again, Paul seems to be saying here in verses 8 through 9 that in some way turning back, t- turning to law keeping for justification. Uh, Choosing to be under the law would be like returning to their former paganism, a statement that would be absolutely shocking to anyone from a Jewish background. It's shocking that Paul, from a Jewish background, makes such an argument. But we just also talked about exactly how his logic works here and why it is that he says that. Um, It's because, again, both involve things like religious calendars and rituals that in some way depend on the physical world, um, which is a world that is perishing in contrast to the imperishable life that comes from, uh, from Christ. Um, all of this, really, everything he's saying in 8 through 11 really goes back to that basic contrast between the divine and the human that he made in the beginning of chapter 1 and has made over a few times again throughout this letter. Um, but, the, the most basic contrast that Paul sets up in Galatians is the contrast between that which is of human origin versus that which is divine, uh, of divine origin. And um, again, one of the surprising things is that he, compar- he, he places the idea of keeping the law to seek justification, seeking justification through law-keeping, uh, he places that on the side of that which is human uh, rather than that which is of divine origin um, because... It involves um, because it involves taking into account uh, human characteristics, human qualities, and human moral achievements. Um, okay, so with that, I'm going to move on to the next section of this chapter from verses 12 through 20, and I'll spend just a little time here and then move into... Um, the last part of the chapter. Uh, So starting in uh, chapter four, verse 12, Paul says, "'Brothers, I beg you, become like me "'because I too have become like you. "'You did me no wrong. "'You know that it was because of bodily illness "'that I first announced the gospel to you. "'In the trial that I was to you in my flesh, "'you neither despised nor spurned, "'but instead you received me as a messenger from God, "'as Christ Jesus. "'So where is your blessing? For I bear witness in your favor that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. So then, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They are eager for you, not for a good purpose, but want instead to shut you out so that you might be eager for them. Now it is good to be eagerly desired for a good purpose at all times, and not only when I am there with you, my children for whom I I am again suffering the pangs of birth until Christ is formed in you. And I wish I were there with you now and could change my tone of voice, for I am at a loss about you. Okay, so what we have here in these two paragraphs is uh, taken together uh, a sort of uh, impassioned pastoral plea uh, to the Galatians. these the in these couple paragraphs it's though Paul just slows down for a second he stops for a second and makes it more personal he rehearses a little bit of the personal history that he has with the Galatians and their their relationship in the past um So, in verses 13 through 15, he's referring back to when he first came to them, when he first visited them and met them. And apparently, at that time, he was facing some illness, some bodily illness or bodily ailment, as he says, uh, that seems to have probably been related to his eyes. Um, He says in verse 15, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. So, it seems like whatever illness, whatever ailment he was facing probably had something to do with his eyes. Whatever it was, uh, the point is that they showed him great kindness, and they cared for him. Uh, they got off to a great start together. Uh, and now, now ironically, um, their relationship has fallen on hard times, and, and he says, have i become your enemy by telling you the truth. Um, this, would have, this is a little bit, I think, meant to be ironic uh, because there's a lot of uh, ancient literature, several ancient writers actually describe a friend. Some of the, some of the most important um, ancient writers on friendship were Aristotle, Cicero, Plutarch. And uh, these writers tend to describe a friend, uh, Plutarch does so very specifically, as one who tells you the truth frankly. Um, So, Paul seems to be playing off of a common understanding of what a friend is uh, in the ancient world. A friend is one who tells you the truth and tells it to you frankly, regardless of whether you want to hear it or not. Um, And so, he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Uh, This is probably meant to strike the Galatians as uh, ironic behavior on their part. Uh, But then in the next paragraph, 17 through 20, he gets down to, he seems now to be talking about the Judaizers or the circumcision party, these people who were out there telling them that they need to be obedient to the law to be part of uh, God's people. And and he says, you know, they, on the other hand, they are eager for you, not for a good purpose. So they're, they're not interested in your benefit. They're interested in their own benefit. Um, what they really want is to shut you out. They want to isolate you. They want to alienate you so that, um, so that you will have to be more reliant on them. In other words, if they can make you obedient to the law, um, They know that you will be alienated from the larger body of Christ, and in a sense, they'll be your only friends left, and you will have to be more reliant on them. Uh, And so he's basically saying they're manipulating you. Um, They don't actually care about you, they care about themselves, and they wanna use you for their own personal gain. Um, Paul, on the other hand, and I think this is the meaning behind uh, verse 18, Um, desires them and is eager for them, cares for them, even when he's not actually there with him. Um, I think that's the meaning behind where he says, now it is good to be eagerly desired for a good purpose at all times, and not only when I am there with you. Uh, So, in other words, the analogy seems to be that they only care about you when, um, when they're actually there with you, and, you know, when Uh, When you turn your back, when you're not together, they don't care at all about you. They only pretend to care about you when they're with you. Um, But Paul cares about them whether he's actually there with them or not. He cares about them at all times. And he calls them his children here. Um, And so the bottom line in, if you put uh, verses 12 through 20 together, is that Paul is, Paul is saying to them, look, I am the one who really cares about you, not these other people. Um, they, they have their own agenda to use you for their personal gain, uh, but they don't care about you. I'm the one who actually cares about you. Um, so it's a little bit of a pastoral moment and a personal moment for Paul in the, in the midst of what is otherwise a pretty weighty uh, theological argument. Okay, so this brings me then to um, verse 21, verses 21 through 32, the last part of chapter 4, which is perhaps the most confusing part of the whole chapter, so I wanted to make sure that I actually got here um, and can spend a little bit of time here. But uh, in, in chapter In chapter 4, verses 21 through 32, Paul sets up an allegory, and uh, he'll tell us plainly that it's an allegory, but let's go ahead and read the verses and see what he has to say here. Uh, So starting in verse 21, Paul says, "'Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the maidservant and one by the free woman.'" Now the one by the maidservant was born according to the flesh, and the one from the free woman through the promise. These things are spoken allegorically, for the two women are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to present-day Jerusalem, for she slaves along with her children. But the Jerusalem above, who is our mother, is the free woman, for it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and shout, you who suffer no birth pangs, for many are the children of the desolate woman more than those of her who has a husband. And you, brothers, are children of a promise in the manner of Isaac. But just as back then the one born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? cast out the maidservant and her son for the son of the maidservant will by no ma- will by no means inherit along with the son of the free woman so brothers we are not children of the maidservant but children of the free woman okay so I, that that seems perfectly clear so I'll, I'll just go ahead and take questions now um, no, no just kidding um, the yeah this this passage has confused uh, probably as many people who, has ever, who have ever read it, um, and it takes a few passes to sort of make sense of uh, what's going on here. Um, but first of all, it is an allegory. Paul tells us uh, plainly that he's, uh, making an, he's giving an allegorical interpretation in verse 24. He says these things are spoken allegorically. Now, on the one hand, that means he's definitely interpreting uh, the Genesis passage that he's referring to, um, allegorically, uh, but he also seems to actually say like no these things were originally uh, meant to sort of allegorically point forward to uh, these future realities in Christ. Uh, now the, what he's, the reading that he's giving is really of Genesis 16 through 17 and, and 21. Um, Those three chapters are where we would find everything that he's referring to here. And, of course, he's referring to uh, the account of Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, Ishmael was the son that Abraham had by um, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and Isaac is the son that was promised to him by God that he has by Sarah herself. Um, And... um, and hence, the the son of the maidservant and the son of the free woman. Um, Nathaniel, can you uh, jump forward? There we go. Um, and so I've sort of mapped out how the allegory seems to work here. Um, the the sort of main characters uh, involved and, and what they what they equal in this allegory. Um, but the. So a couple words real quick. Uh, first of all, allegory was allegorical reading, like what Paul's doing right here. It was actually a very common practice in both ancient Jewish and early Christian interpretation of Scripture. So um, those who read this originally probably would not have seen anything terribly odd in what Paul is doing. Uh, they would seem they would have seen something weird about it. But what they would have thought was weird was not that he makes an allegorical interpretation. That was not uncommon. Uh, that was not unheard of at all. And this isn't the only time in Paul's letters that he does it. He also does it at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10. Um, the, in all of this, there, the reason why ancient Jews and Christians uh, would do this uh, has to do with an underlying theological belief that according to divine providence, Uh, it makes sense that you would find correspondences between earlier and later events in history. So because they read history as under the providence of, a, uh, of God, um, they reasoned that it, it, made, it only made sense that the, the events later in history would often correspond to events earlier in history. And that was sort of the underlying theological principle um, that, that drove allegorical interpretation like what we see here. Um, so anyway, within Paul's specific allegory, Uh, He compares Hagar to the Sinai Covenant, uh, including the law, and he compares Sarah, the free woman, to the new covenant um, by faith in Christ. Now, what would have shocked uh, the readers, again, is not that uh, he makes an allegorical interpretation. It would have been comparing Hagar, um, Ishmael's mother, um, to the Sinai Covenant and the law, rather than Sarah, um, the mother of Isaac, who is the father of Israel. Um, that would have been the shocking part. And I think that Paul means for it to be shocking, and he does it on purpose. Um, but, the, but, the, but the other question that we often have when we come to this passage is, what is his reasoning here? How in the world does Paul figure that Hagar is uh, the Sinai covenant and that Sarah is that Sarah somehow represents the new covenant in Christ. Um, but it, the thing is, he actually tells us. It's easier than you might think, and he tells you explicitly what his reasoning is in verse 25. He says, now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to present-day Jerusalem for, you could also translate that because, because she slaves along with her children. Um, the idea here is that those who are under the law are slaves to the law. They are in a form of slavery to the law, and so they correspond to Hagar, who was a slave and whose children were children of slavery. Um, That's the relationship. That's his basis for drawing this analogy. Um, Those who are under the law are analogous to Hagar and her children because what they have in common is Uh, is slavery. Um, He's basically saying if you're under the law, you're a slave to the law, and in that way you are analogous to Hagar and her children. But in faith in Christ, there is freedom, freedom from the law, um, freedom from slavery. And so those who are following uh, Christ by faith are actually analogous to Sarah and, um, and her promised son Isaac, um, and, and so in this way, what he's really doing is saying that uh, those who are of faith in Christ, and this is more or less what he, almost exactly what he says in verse 28, um, and you brothers are children of a promise in the manner of Isaac, what he's really getting at is saying that it is those who have faith in Christ who are the, chil- the true children of the promise, the true descendants of, of Isaac um, and of Israel, um, in, if you like. Uh, they are the true heirs to the promises of Israel rather than those who simply keep the Torah and seek to be justified by keeping Torah. And so, ironically, Paul says if you're seeking to be justified by Torah, then you're actually analogous to Hagar. Um, But the true children of the promise are the ones who seek justification um, by faith in Christ. Um, So, this whole complicated allegory actually is just driving toward the same point that Paul has already made up in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, um, about about Abraham and Abraham's true descendants. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, he said, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so you know that it is those who are of faith who are children of Abraham. Uh, he's arguing there that it is those who have Abraham's faith, who share Abraham's faith, rather than his ethnic bloodline um, who are his true Uh, descendants, um, and the descendants of the promises to him, the heirs of the promises to him. In much more complicated terms, in uh, chapter 4, verses 21 through 32, through this allegory, he's actually making exactly the same point. Um, And I have only left one minute for questions, um, but uh, we have one minute, so go for it. I was struck in um, verse 26. He uses this, this term about the Jerusalem of above is free, and she is our mother. Um, when I think of the Jerusalem above, my mind goes to the end of Revelation where it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And I was wondering if that's, this idea of the Jerusalem above is common in Jewish thought at that time or if that was something new here. That's a great question. And as far as I know, I, I can't recall in all the Jewish literature I've ever read um, having come across the phrase Jerusalem above. And so I think that this is probably something that really begins with early Christians. And, uh, and here I think the idea is, again, going back to that human-divine contrast, um, the, uh, the Jerusalem from above um, is referring to Jerusalem from God, so a sort of... Um, spiritual Jerusalem, if you will, in this case, um, uh, that, that, has its, uh, that has its origins with God himself uh, rather than uh, the physical present-day Jerusalem and distinguishing between those two. Um, but yeah, to, to your basic question, um, I've read a lot of Jewish literature, and I can't remember ever coming across the phrase Jerusalem from above, so I suspect it's of Christian origin. Thank you um any uh, we yeah i can probably take one more here so he talks about um not leading your life by calendars right and the astronomy and planets and things like that but still in christianity today things like easter are based on lunar cycles you know or we live on calendars have we gotten away from this concept or what was he trying to get to? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, so I think the difference is that Paul, I don't think, has any problem with calendars, uh, religious or otherwise, or, um, so much as he would have a problem with it if you were seeking to be justified by it, if it were um, part of a system of religion by which you were seeking to be justified before God. But the difference with us is that while we keep uh, we keep holidays, we observe um, Christmas and Easter and, and other uh, religious holidays on a calendar, um, we're not seeking to be justified before God on that basis. Um, so I think that's the, the main difference. Uh, okay, I really do have to end here because it's 1117, um, and so I can only apologize for the fact that I unloaded uh, a ton on you all and now don't have time to answer questions. But uh, email me if you have them. Uh, Thank you all.